Well, we're coming to the meat of our message here in this series on Elisha. You know, we looked at him as a person, as how he was the servant to his master, Elijah, um, how he came into the same ministry, but he received the double portion of that. Uh, but now we're going to look at some of the miracles he performed and how God moved in his life um, and hopefully find some truths in there as we look at them. So for a couple of them, I'm like, uh, how do these apply to us? But we'll see what the Holy Spirit uh, says and brings out, you know, but they can speak to us of some truths of for the church, of what he wants to do in the church and how he wants to move in his people, but also in our lives and some lessons we can learn for today. And so the last time we left off, Elisha had picked up the mantle of his master and he tore his old one up, speaking of putting away the old and, and accepting the new. And there are times when God says, I want to lead you in a new way you haven't been before. And we have to be willing to walk through it and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to take up my, sometimes it's taking up our cross because it's not an easy way. And other times it's, it's a new mountaintop or it's a new experience that he has for us. But we have to be like the new wineskins, able to enter into the new. And so he's walking in this new way and he has to go across Jordan. And he, you know, in the very same way that, I I know I just said new things, but he does it the same way as his master did it. All right. So he takes up the mantle of his master and strikes the water and it divides and he walks across the Jordan onto dry ground. And actually, let's read this in Second Kings um, 2, verse 14. It says, He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and he smote the waters, and he said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? When he had smitten the waters, they parted one way or another, and he went over. And so it was as if he was kind of walking in a new position, a new level of power that he hadn't experienced. Well, it was upon his his master, but now it was upon him and he was walking in that. It's kind of like a confirmation. And in a sense, I mean, it was a confirmation that he had entered into the the same ministry as his master. Um, and, and something we notice is he didn't go to the prophets and say, look, God spoke to me. Now I'm in charge. All right. He didn't kind of have to do that, but God moved upon him and everyone knew it. Well, God's made him in charge. He did it the same way that uh, his master did. And, um, you know, he didn't have to make that proclamation that said everything for because of how God, God's hand upon him. And you know, I was thinking of a, a verse in Proverbs 18 and verse 16. It says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. And, you know, there's that thought that God confirmed and backed up Elisha through his, the mantle that came upon him through his giftings and his anointings and so forth. And God did it. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to declare himself to be the man of the hour or any, anything like that. And so there was an element of humility where he was just walking in the pathway God was leading him and God took care of the rest. It's not always the case in, uh, in the church even, or especially in the world. Proverbs 20, verse 6, we see a lot of this. 
Most men proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. Most men is a pretty broad category, isn't it? <laughs> it means pretty much everyone. Right? That there's very few who are just willing to walk in humility. Right? Everyone's kind of proclaiming, hey, I'm good, I'm this and that, and, and so forth, look at me. But a faithful man is rare. Right? And so some people go to great lengths to let people know who they're in charge or they're great or so forth. They have an exalted position. Now, there's kind of a lot of titles being given out today. Even in the church, people like their titles, right? Apostle, prophet, bishop, reverend, doctor, so-and-so. Um, but what really matters with God is that we're found faithful. At the end of the day, nothing else matters. And if we are faithful and have a, a heart that's faithful to do what he's calling us, then God will make room for us. He'll confirm us in the pathway that he has for us. Now, the second miracle that took place was when Elisha came to Jericho. So he's going across Jordan and going back to Jericho. And in 2 Kings 2, let's read what happens here. 2 Kings 2.19, it says, The men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray the situation is pleasant in this city as my Lord sees. But there's one little issue. It says the water is not good. The ground is barren. And he said, bring me a new cruise and put salt in that. They brought it and he went unto the spring of the waters and he cast the salt in there. And he said, thus says the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not come from thence any more death or barren land. And so it says that the people of God were living in a good place. It was pleasant, except the source of water wasn't good. And it was, it was affecting the land. It was causing it to be barren. I don't know if it was like a, I don't know what, what would be in the waters or something that would, wasn't good for the crops or so forth. Um, but it was affecting things. Otherwise, it was pleasant. It was good. And so... Another way that we can look at this is that it's, it was bitter waters, right? It wasn't really pleasant to drink or wasn't good and useful. But that can speak of, of several things to us, is that at times we can have to go through bitter experiences, experiences that aren't really what we were looking forward to in the Christian life or in life in general, um, you know, we can have experienced great difficulties in the past or think people have done stuff to us or, you know, unpleasant things and things that we recognize even God allowed to happen because there's no accidents in life, right? We realize God is in charge. Now, we can see this illustrated in several places, in, especially in the Old Testament. In Song of Solomon, it talks about the, the north wind and the south wind, you know, Song of Solomon 4.16 talks about the, you know, the wind, winds blowing upon her garden. And so the Shulamite is, is going through that progression of becoming the bride prepared for her bridegroom. And uh, she, she experiences the pleasant and warm winds that come from the south that blow upon the garden. But then there's that cold, bitter north wind that's not pleasant. She has to experience both of them. 
you know, and sometimes there's, there's plants that we like, you know, here in Florida, um, we have, we have a kind of a tropical, uh, climate and there's plants you'd like to plant from up North, but there's a problem is some plants need like a good cold spell to really make them bear fruit, don't they? And and it's like you're you're just below that level. Sometimes you can plant stuff in Georgia or Carolinas, but you can't plant it down here because it it has a cold snap up there. And you know there, that can be true in the Christian life is that sometimes we have to go through a season of bitterness, a season where we're, oh that cold wind that no one really likes it gets to you, but it also causes us to do things, to cry out to God, to look our to look to Him to set our eyes upon him and hope in him. And it causes, it affects our fruit. As we trust in him, it can affect it in, in a positive way. It can make us even more fruitful. Another th- way that we see, you know, these, these bitter seasons that God takes us through, I was just thinking of the Passover. You know, Exodus 12 and verse 8, how the children of Israel, they ate a supper of, of lamb and unleavened bread. Right? Sounds like a like a tasty supper, but it says they had to eat it with bitter herbs. So I don't know I don't know if that if they were tasty, if they kind of made it kind of unpleasant or what, but that was the commandment of the Lord. If they just had to mix it somehow, but they had to eat it with bitter herbs. But you know, it was a re- reminder. Or I should say it's a reminder to us, and it's a reminder that to the to the children of Israel, blood had to be shed and put upon the doorposts. But in reality, it's it's a reminder to us of the pathway Christ took for us. He didn't come and live a, a happy life on earth in the sense of not experiencing bitterness. He experienced great bitterness. Many unpleasant experiences all on our behalf. Also that we could know him and be with him for eternity. But we also know we're called to take up our cross and follow him in that pathway. And so there will be some bitter experiences along the way. But there's good news. Is that as we follow him, he's the God who cleanses the bitter waters. He washes them away. He puts the the salt into them and renews the water to make it life-giving. And so he wants to come into our lives as, as Elisha, even though he's taken us through situations and probably will take us through situations that can leave a really bitter taste in our mouths. But God wants to do that miracle, that as we come to him and we present those situations, you know, that's what's so wonderful about God. There's no situation that's too bitter that he can't put his heavenly salt into and transform it into something that gives life something that we can rest upon because God met us in that situation. And so he wants to meet us as he did through Elisha and Jericho. Now there's one more aspect we can consider uh, concerning the bitter that I was just kind of quickened with is what comes forth from us. James 3 in verse 10 says this, Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and and cursing? My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a, does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? And I think we realize the answer is, no, it doesn't. 
We have the choice of either being a sweet fountain and cause the sweetness of Christ to go forth or a bitter fountain. And even just a little bit of bitterness causes that fountain to be changed over from sweet to bitter. It can't be both at the same time. You know, there's some people out there that say, well, I'm a Christian and then I go to church and say, God bless you and, and so forth. But during the week, from their heart comes forth things that are not sweet and pleasant, but rather bitter. You know, they bless some, but don't bless others. James says this is ought not to be so. We're to be a fountain that only brings forth the sweetness, the sweet waters of Christ. You know, we're reviled, but we are to bless. We're hated, but we're to love. That's the message of Christ. And so at times, God will reveal things that might affect our sweet fountain, all right, that makes us bitter. And that's where we can come to him. And that's where this, this miracle is so encouraging for us, is that bitter thing. Maybe it's something in our heart or it's something in our past, but God can heal that bitterness if we come to him. You know, people, the people told Elisha, this is a very pleasant place except for the bitter water. And everything can be wonderful. We can have gifts and callings, but what can spoil it all is that bitterness that we allow to remain. It can spoil the fruit, but God is so gracious. He can come and renew our waters, cleanse that bitter experience. And now I mentioned salt, all right? That's what it was a cruise filled with salt that Elisha poured in. And, you know, of course, salt has been a preservative for thousands of years. They've used that before they had refrigerators. They just salt the meat and so forth, and it would preserve it. And uh, in the scriptures, salt can speak of sincerity, right? A sincere heart that simply desires to please God, to follow him and obey him, that heart will preserve us. That heart will preserve us. Of course, Jesus said, if a, you know, if salt has lost its saltiness, if a Christian has lost his sincerity, well, what's the outcome? He, he, instead of being a sincere Christian, he becomes a hypocritical Christian. And it is good for nothing. We need that salt. We need that response to God. Lord, cleanse anything that will affect my sincerity of just wanting to follow you to obey you, to serve you. And when we come to him with that sincere heart and just, Lord, set me free from those bitter experiences, Lord, from that thing that's coming from my nature, the Lord is so gracious to set us free. Now, we're coming to a rather unusual miracle. And this is one of those ones that's like, Lord, how, where are we going to bring from this? Uh, because this was a miracle of judgment that involved children. It's not one you usually preach at Sunday. Well, maybe you would preach at Sunday school if you have a bunch of disobedient children. I don't know. But let's read 2 Kings 2, verse 23. And it says, He went from, from thence unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city that mocked him and said, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and he looked on them and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and tear forty 
and two children of them. And so that's quite a story. Well, it wasn't a story. It happened. You know, I mean, that's quite something for this group of children. And obviously they were not children of the Lord. I mean, they were children of the wicked one for God to judge them in such a way. And, of course, that's something I didn't include it in my notes. But, you know, we, we also have to acknowledge that the Bible says the wicked are estranged from the womb. And so some right, are born in wickedness and they don't follow God and they're not delivered from that even as children. But it kind of gets off in a different area. But I was just thinking of how this these children, in a sense, represent a generation, right? Because children represent the next generation coming up, coming forth. And I was reminded of, of Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 12. In every generation, there's this truth. Right? Proverbs 30, 12 says, There is a generation that is pure in their own eyes, yet is not washed from their filthiness. There's a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids lifted up. There's a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. In reality, in every generation, there are some who are like this. But it also typifies the generation of the last days. They're pure in their own eyes. In the sense, they don't need to regard the things of God. They don't need to regard uh, his words of correction. In fact, if someone tries to correct them, look out. Their teeth are like swords. They come back at you and they attack those who hold to the truth. And, you know, Peter talks about the spirit of the last days, the spirit of the age of the last days in which we're coming into. And he says this in Second Peter 3 and verse 3. He says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so one of the elements of the last days that, you know, the spirit of the age we're coming into, really, we're in it now, in that sense, is that of scoffing or mocking. And what does it mean to scoff or to mock? I mean, we have a good idea. It's part of our culture. Um, But one definition puts it this way. It's to speak about someone or something in a way which shows that you have no respect for that person or that thing. It's to speak in a way almost with the goal of showing disrespect, dishonor. And unfortunately, that's kind of become a part of our culture is to mock and to scoff, to bring down. And so the reality is we live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation that has little or no respect for the ways of God, for the things of God. They take that very lightly. They take his ways very lightly, which is a dangerous place to be. And what is very sad is that attitude has kind of come into the church to a degree. And how has it come? Because there, you know, we can come to a place where we only respect the pleasant things of God, the pleasant things of the gospel, right? Where we, we respect that God has saved us and given us wonderful promises or so forth. But, you know, when we start to get in certain areas of the gospel, 
You know, when God speaks certain things to us of dealing with our hearts and, you know, cleansing and so forth, well, that's not very pleasant. Words of correction, right? pointing out attitudes or something. Well, we tend to take those words, not, not put as much importance on those words, and we focus on things that are more pleasant. But, you know, this was Israel's problem. They were, they, they totally believed in God. They believed in his promises, but they were dead set on only certain words that God was coming to restore Israel and, and bring them back to a glorious place in the earth and make Jerusalem the glory and the praise of the whole earth. They said, Amen, Lord, do it. And Jesus returned. But he wanted to do something else first. You know, those promises were absolutely true and they, they will be fulfilled. But he wanted to do something else first as he wanted to bring about a change in their hearts. A change to bring them into the light of his truth as a people. He wanted to establish the kingdom of God within them before he established his natural kingdom upon earth. Now we see an example of this in Luke 4 of how they responded. And this is especially true when Jesus came back to his hometown of Nazareth. Um, and he was sharing in the synagogue. And in Luke 4.18, he was reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, recovering of the sight to the blind, to set them at liberty that are bruised. Then in, then in verse 22, it says, And all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And then he started to speak to them. And he started to warn them, saying, No prophet is accepted in his own country. And then he started to speak about God meeting the Gentiles. And they became enraged that he would dare to speak of any other purpose than God restoring Israel to their natural place in the world and in the earth. And so it caused them, instead of hearing his words, they, they grabbed him and led him up to a cliff about to throw him off. Of course, he just walked right through the midst of them. So they would not accept his words. They scoffed and they took it lightly his, so that his word had no effect in their lives and in their hearts, except to make them angry. Of course, that's kind of the, the other result. There's kind of two, two, it's, there's two ways to go down this. We accept his words and we're changed or we don't accept them and we get angry. We, there's not really an in-between in the long term anyway. But, you know, then Jesus goes to another town. He goes to Capernaum. And it says this in Luke 4.31. It says, He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. There was a difference. Uh, he, he was in his hometown where they knew who he was and saw that and went, ah, this can't be the Messiah. They took his words lightly. But here it seems as if his words were more powerful. I don't know if, at least for the time being, they, they received and responded to his words in a greater way because his word was with power. But the point I want to bring out here is the danger of the spirit of this age, of taking the things of God lightly. You know, if we allow it to, it, it'll start to rub off on us and kind of get into us as it has to many in the church today 
of taking the things of God lightly. And so we want to be so careful of the, of the spirit of this age where God speaks to his people, but they disregard his word, his warnings, his ex- exhortations because it's taken lightly. You know, that, I was just kind of thinking, that's really one of my greatest fears is to take the word of God lightly, to overlook or ignore something that's God's speaking. Because, you know, if, if we come to that place where we can respond to the word of God time and again, we're going we're gonna to be where he wants us to be. We're going to overcome. We're going to triumph. But when we get to that place where we receive the good words and kind of put the, the difficult words on the back burner, that's where we get into trouble. And God only allows it for so long. You know, if there's one thing we understand about the last days is we know it will be a time of power. It's going to be a a glorious time and we long for that. But, you know, it's good to remind ourselves that at the very same time of the glory is also judgment. Right. And that's clear from the early church. They were in a glorious time, thousands being brought to the church. And we say, Lord, bring that again. We need some. We need some fresh blood. We need some influx of hungry people. But, you know, at the very same time, there was Ananias and Sapphira. But I'll tell you what, if, if they didn't have a fear of God before that, they did afterwards. In fact, the scriptures is very clear. It says, when they saw that, fear came upon the church and they walked in a holy reverence. And so we're coming into a time when the standards are going to be much higher. As we cry out for revival, we're, we're going to come into it. We're a time where we just can't do what we want to do or say what we want to say. Well, we can't now, but there's not the external consequences as in, in revival. But there's going to come a time when God is going to require his people to, to live the life. I mean, he always requires it, but it's going to be very real. You know, God was speaking to Ezekiel about judgment being brought upon Jerusalem. Let's close with this last verse. He says this in Ezekiel 14, 14. He says, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, says the Lord God. That's a remarkable statement. They are the most righteous men who ever lived upon the face of the earth, at least up to that point. And these three righteous men, it says, they would only save themselves through their own righteousness, their good conduct and obedience to God in the midst of that time of judgment. It, you know, but they were also men that didn't disregard the word of God or take it lightly. They learned to greatly value his voice. And you can look at the lives of... Oops, I just lost my nose. Oh, got it back. You know, you can look at each of their lives and see periods where... They valued the voice of the Lord more than anything else. And that kept them. And God called them some of the wisest men who ever lived. And I think it was because of that very thing. But those who come under the spirit of this age, those who scoff and take his word lightly will be judged. But those who love his word, who love righteousness and hate wickedness, They'll take on the characteristic of salt because they'll be preserved. And they will be salt and light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation and preserve many others. 
And so we want to cry out, oh, Lord, give me a love for your word. Lord, I want to be preserved by having the opposite of the spirit of this age, but I want the spirit of Christ to love and respect your word, even your voice of correction, that it will come and it will be like an ointment upon your head. As David said, Lord, let the righteous smite me. It will be a kindness. It'll be an, an ointment upon me. It will heal me. But his voice will preserve us. I didn't really intend to end on that miracle because that was kind of a, you know, a heavy one. But uh, there you go. But, you know, we can come back to the other one kind of in, in closing. You know, those bitter waters being healed. God so longs to do that. He so desires to do that. You know, he loves to heal naturally. He's the great physician. But I think one of the things he longs to do even more is heal his people in the spirit because that's eternal. Our natural body, we're going to have aches and pains and problems, you know. But then we go on into glory and they all disappear. But what's done in our spirits is eternal. And he longs to come and set us free in our spirit so that we can follow him. And and so, you know, just in closing, let's cry out to God for him to come, you know. And maybe we don't even know in our lives or don't realize the bitter things that God wants to cleanse us from. Or maybe we do, and it's like, Lord, I need that dealt with. Or maybe even coming to the place where we say, okay, Lord, I'm ready for you to come and cleanse those things away. But he so longs to do that, to set us free, to make room for us in the pleasant land that he's appointed for us. Amen? Amen. Maybe Pastor Jason can come and just lead us in a chorus, and I'll come back and pray.